Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Productions and Podcast. Today is the 13th of January, 2022. Now, we're going to embark on which will probably be the penultimate lecture on avirulence. We've been getting pretty deep into a discussion of bacterial genetics and the infection process as it relates to a specific two-component system. I've also broadened the scope to explain how I see virulence and avirulence in multiple microbial and non-microbial yet pathogenic interactions with the host. And that is the key feature of what I'm trying to develop here is how this is a significant component in a biomedical, what is often refractory exposure to potential pathogens. And I will detail that probably in the next lecture when I put together a dialectical event ontology of this discussion, because I think it merits it. But right now I want to just continue uh, with this in-depth discussion because we're um, kind of rounding uh, the last turn here and we're getting to the gate. And this is where I want to be. So we mentioned about bacteriosins. And bacteriosins, again, are basically secreted glycoproteins that are expressively toxic to bacteria that are synthesized by bacteria. So their proteins are peptides, and they have usually a very pronounced antimicrobial activity. And again, they're produced by certain bacteria to inhibit the growth of neighboring bacteria belonging sometimes to very similar or closely associated species. So in the S. mutans, S. gordonii, and S. pneumoniae, in that, in that cluster of uh, streptococci, you have the CIARH system, and it has a cognate signal display, which is associated with bacteriosin production. So mutasins, specific kind of bacteriosins, produced by S. mutans. And what it does is it has antimicrobial effects on those other streptococcal species, and indeed on other bacteria that you may find in the dental plaque vis-a-vis uh, -vis the interaction within the biofilm. Now, here's, here's where it gets interesting. The deletion of CIAH, but not of a CIAR mutant, repressed mutasin-1 production. So it looks like that histidine kinase is essential for mutasin production. Okay. So if you delete the CIAH, you repress bacteriosin production. Okay. Now, Data on the contribution of the entire locus, the CIARH, to bacteriosin production in either Gordii or even the pneumoniae are in opposition to that, what we just described to you in mutants. So in pneumoniae, bacteriosin, uh, which has a different name here, it's called pneumosin, its production is negatively regulated by CIH. So deletion of CIH induces the production of 
pneumosin. It's called pneumosin MN, by the way, to be very specific. And indeed, the activation of the CIA histidine kinase diminished the production of pneumosin MN. Okay, so you delete that CIA histidine kinase gene from the locus, you induce the production of the mucin. Um, but when you activate the CIH, you, dimi you diminish the production of the pneumosin. Okay. Similarly, in Escordonii, the entire locus, CIRH, was activated while the production of bacteriosin was inhibited and this was in one of those delta SDBA mutants. Remember the disulfide oxidase. And a loss of function of the CIRH in the delta SDBA mutant restored bacteriosin production. Okay? So once again, <laughs> you have a complex epistatic interaction. You've got two different genetic loci which produce polypeptide that are linked or associated because of their pathway um, molecular interactions. And what you see is a controlling mechanism over a potential, that's right, a virulence factor. Because if you generate one of these bacteriosins and from one bacterial and it inhibits the growth of the other bacteria so that that other bacteria, which might be a pathogen, cannot carry out pathogenesis, then you could argue that the bacteriosin production from the first bacterium has transferred an avirulence factor to the pathogen. Right? So that's how far I'm extending out my definition. So just so you know where I'm coming from here. I like to be able to define my principles. So that leads us to this final discussion um, on this topic, I think, at least in terms of the CIA RH. We may proceed further, but right now I'm just going to tell you about virulence and pathogenesis. So many studies have shown that the CIA RH has a very significant role, as we've been talking about, in the virulence and therefore pathogenesis of the streptococci. During the infection process, the bacteria will adhere to invade and colonize the host organism, for example, teeth and the oral cavity, with the aid and necessarily so of virulence factors. That leads to related infectious diseases that are become the sequelae. So in Estimoniae, CARH controls the expression of the HTRA, which remember was connected to virulence. So in the marine model of pneumonia, there's a, this is a mouse model of pneumonia, where you can disrupt genes. The disruption of the CARH or the HTRA, which remember controls, is control, its expression is controlled by the CIRH. So you either disrupt, that means you use homologous recombination to corrupt the gene expression because you put foreign DNA into the middle of the operon. That's what a disruption is. Okay. 
what you get is a significant reduction in pneumococcal colonization in the nasopharyngeal tissue, which is where it would normally carry out its virulence and pathogenesis. So another study showed, so you get that, right? That supplementation of the S. pneumoniae with a delta CIAR mutant with the HTRA can recover the virulence. So in the process of colonization, sialic acids, which are part of the glycocalyx, and therefore there are glycoproteins on the surface of bacteria. Uh, and on membranes in general, you find sialic acids, of course, in the host. We talked about this. Sialated glycolipids are very common in mammals. Anyway, in the process of colonization, sialic acids serve as a carbon source for S. pneumoniae. So it's a carbohydrate, right? And so it serves as a carbon source for S. pneumoniae, and they are consumed by the enzyme uh, that is generated from the gene called NAN-A, and the enzyme, of course, is just a sialidase. So recently, a study was shown that the CIAR, now that's a receptor, on the, it has the aspartic acid that picks up the transphosphorylated uh, phosphate from the histidine kinase that has been autophosphorylated, it's been reported that CIAR senses N-acetylneuraminic acid, which is sialic acid, and that's the new 5-AC, and that's the most abundant sialic acid, of course, in humans. And the result is an increase in the HTRA expression and other genes involved in sialic acid metabolism and indeed in reactive oxygen species tolerance. All of that contributes to the increase in pneumococcal virulence. One more thing, CIAR stimulates the PLIC1P1 promoter, so the PLIC1P1, that promoter activity of a choline metabolism-related LIC locus. And that promotes, yeah, pneumococcal colonization in the host. Now, choline metabolism, of course, is also related to phospholipid, right? Because we have, and also a sphingolipid. So you have um, the potential, because sphingomyelin, of course, and phosphatidylcholine both have choline. So any metabolism that relates to the trimethylation of ethanolamine, which is what choline metabolism is associated with, will be, will be intimately linked to membrane lipid modification, biosynthesis uh, in particular. And I've just told you now that the CIAR, CIAR stimulates a promoter activity of choline metabolism. And that's related to this LIC locus. And that all promotes pneumococcal colonization in the host. Okay. So with strep mutans, the main causative agent of dental caries, the main virulence factor is actually the production of acid as part of lactic acid or acetic acid as part of the bacterial biofilm. And it constitutes basically dental plaque, that bacterial biofilm. So as mutans also expresses, as we've been saying, a variety of cell surface and secreted virulence factors, including one that we haven't described yet, but now we're going to, and that is hemolysin. 
So the polysaccharide capsule has been identified as itself a significant virulence factor for group B streptococci. Remember, those are the GBS we talked about at the beginning of this series of lectures. And those are the leading cause of neonatal sepsis, pneumonia, and meningitis in humans in both the U.S. and in Western Europe. So these are very, very nasty pathogens. Okay. So GBS also express a variety of surface proteins that allow for the evasion of evasion of the host immune response. And the hemolysin called CYLE mediates that invasion and in fact induces tissue degradation because it's a hemolysin. I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, specifically what I mean, but obviously it's going to be lysing erythrocytes, right? Now, that's the GBS. Now, the GAS, which is the group A strep, um, are often termed the most versatile of the streptococcal pathogens. And that's because they have even a broader range of virulence factors. And all those virulence factors are functioning in one way or another to evade the host immune response and yet still cause tissue damage. So toxins and tissue-degrading enzymes probably have very significant roles in the severe diseases we're talking about here, along with the induction of the inflammatory response in the host. Right? But the gas infection, in particular, uh, has been noted because it causes necrotizing fasciitis. So you've all heard of that, sure. So group A strep also produces superantigenic toxins. And these actually stimulate T lymphocytes. And they stimulate T lymphocytes to produce pro-inflammatory cytokines. And those are, of course, directly associated with what is known as the streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. And the cytotoxins known as streptolysin O or SLO and streptolysin S, SLS, are directly linked to this process. These are the super antigenic toxins generated by group A strep. So streptococcus pneumoniae, which is also known as simply the pneumococcus, is of course, or can be, a commensal micro microbe in the upper respiratory tract, where it doesn't cause any pathogenesis. However, if it gains access to the central nervous system or, now this is very significant, to the lower respiratory tract, it will induce massive inflammation. And so that's why there is a link between meningitis and pneumonia. So what am I telling you here? You can induce a bacterial infection that can be pathogenic, which will induce massive inflammation of the lower respiratory tract from otherwise a commensal staphylococcus. And this is associated, of course, with its change in infection court from the upper respiratory tract, where it's not a pathogen, to the lower respiratory tract, where it can cause severe morbidity and even death it will produce bacterial pneumonia. So I'm telling you. 
Likewise, if it gets in the CNS, it will produce spinal meningitis and CNS general meningitis. So the important virulence factors for the pneumococcus are the capsule itself. Remember those that got cosylated and lipopolysaccharide sugars that we've just been talking about and the choline binding proteins and a particular hemolysin known as pneumolysin. Pneumolysin, okay? So let's get into this hemolysin story a little bit, something I know a little bit about. What a hemolysin is, sensu stricto, is any agent or substance that will promote hemolysis. So it could be an exotoxin protein produced by bacteria, the ones we've just been discussing, or it could even be a host antibody in which the final immune response involves hemolysis. Catch that? So that means that host induction of the inflammatory response that ultimately leads to B cell activations, this could be a T cell to B cell response, B cell activation leading to plasma cell production in the periphery, now producing antibody, that's the plasma cell, can itself induce hemolysis. Okay. And what happens, of course, is that you get the release of hemoglobin from RBCs, from red blood cells. Okay. So hemolysins and other immunological factors, toxins, and enzymes can all generate this hemolysis. And they are all part of that carriage of proteins and indirectly the pro-inflammatory response in the host. So <clears throat> a hemolysin produced by bacteria, such as the ones we're just talking about, including streptococcus, but also staphylococcus, is exemplified by that one hemolysin we just now introduced, step streptolysin. So streptococci produce exotoxic streptolysins. These are secreted, obviously, glycopeptides. And they can be grouped as either alpha or beta. So you've got the alpha hemolytic streptococci, and they produce hemolysis that will cause incomplete hemolytic disease, whereas the beta type causes complete destruction of the red blood cells. Again. So hemolysis of the RBCs can also be mediated, as I said, by antibodies. And two possible mechanisms have been described. There's an intravascular destruction of erythrocytes by complement lysis, something we talked about back last summer, actually, where we're going through the immune response. And also extracellular destruction of erythrocytes by immune cells that will recognize antibody and complement and therefore carry out the lysis on the erythrocyte. Okay, so now something about a beta toxin, let's talk about beta toxins produced by staph aureus and staph intermedius have been known to be uh, very significant in disease. Both toxins have enzymatic properties. And I want to tell you what that property is. They are actually neutral sphingomyelinases, type C. And they have a high specificity for sphingomyelin. Okay. Now, sphingomyelin, as you know, is part of 
what? Sphingomyelin-coated neural tracts, right? These sphingomyelin is a specific sphingosine-based lipid that has phosphonylcholine, much like phosphatidylcholine. Hence, its association with the choline locus. I told you this was coming, right? So these enzymes, these sphingomyelinases, do not have any activity towards, though, the glycerolipids, such as phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylethanolamine, or phosphatidylserine. It's all in a series of phospholipids. And so that is very curious, right? And what these staphylococci do, they, they are involved in a cytolytic action because of the secretion of the beta toxin. And so therefore they degrade sphingomyelin. And that is, of course, a component in the central nervous system, but it's also in membranes in multiple cell lineages in the outer leaflet of eukaryotic cell membrane. That's where you find it. And of course, sphingomyelinase, the enzyme, which is the beta toxin, requires magnesium, okay? And it's been known that SRES and S. intermedius both produce these beta toxins. And this is a process that is studied in the laboratory via what's known as hot-cold hemolysis. So both these staph species are coagulase-positive primary pathogens. But again, they have different host ranges. Okay. And so those host ranges were believed to be associated with the toxins. Now it turns out that the beta toxins from both species are indeed sphingomyelinase type Cs. Now, what I was just describing to you was a paper your professor here published way back in 1996 with his dear colleagues back at the University of Idaho, where I was a professor. And the first author of that paper was a colleague that I brought over to the United States from Poland, that was Kasia Jowanowska, who has since passed away. So I wanted to bring up that paper because, and the uh, the other major uh, contributor here, it was his laboratory we were collaborating with, was Greg Bohach. Okay. And Jim Derringer and Vince Edwards, who also now are well-known in bacterial genetics and bacterial pathology, were then graduate students and postdocs, respectively. So that was a paper way back in 96. I just wanted to bring it to your attention because we we were working out the fact that these hemolysins were sphingomyelinases. You understand? That's very significant because sometimes people think that toxins, when they're produced, such as bacteriosins or mucins, simply bind to a receptor and alter, say, the movement of ions across the channel. But what we were able to show is the beta hemolysins, which are very toxic, uh, as caused by SRES and S intermedius, are actually containing or possessing enzymatic activity. And that was the sphingomyelinase type C, right? Okay, so let's move on from that topic, see what we have left to discuss here. Now for strep mutans, Again, the major virulence factor is the acid, okay? So that's really a significant thing that we've already covered. Dental plaque itself, okay, which is a biofilm, 
has between 200 to 400 distinct bacterial species. And of them, some of them do and some of them don't generate virulence factors. We just went through this whole process with the streptococci, right? With strep mutans versus the other two streptococci that are considered commensal. Okay. Now, dental plaque doesn't just have the bacterial cells. I want to give you a little more detail here about the oral cavity. Dental plaque also has a small number of host epithelial cells, leukocytes, lymphocytes, and macrophages. Macrophages, of course, are a type of leukocyte. So are lymphocytes, really. So all of these different cells, host cells and bacterial cells, are maintained within the extracellular matrix, which itself is formed from bacterial products and from components in the saliva. And therefore, the extracellular matrix contains polypeptide, polysaccharide, and lipids that are contributed by both bacterial species in that consortium biofilm and the host. Okay. So you have what are to call different colors of microbial complexes. And they've been described from mild to severe. And the mild are the so-called yellow color group and the orange are intermediate, and then the red are considered strong pathogens. So within the yellow color group, which are subgingival plaque, you have strep mitis, strep oralis, and strep sanguis. You also have strep gordonii and S. intermedius. Okay. Then all the way to the far end of the spectrum, the pathogenic ones, you have gingivalis, you have T. forsythia, and you have T. denticola. So P. gingivalis, T. forsythia, and T. denticola. So you have quite a range of bacteria that exist between, within the microbial plaque. Now, oral infections per se are induced by, again, environmental changes. Big one is pH change. Anything that favors an aciduric bacteria, as a bacteria that can live with an acid environment, will normally generate dental karyogenesis. And they will cause, once that occurs, once that starts, that infection cord is now switched, you get an ecological shifting amongst all the different bacterial species resident in the oral cavity. Okay. And a lot of that has to do with this, this ecological change in the oral cavity with adaptive responses that normally involve post-transcriptional regulation of the secretion of polypeptide. Okay, And that's where we were at at the very beginning of this whole discussion. Right? Way back at the beginning is where we were. So as it turns out, oral bacteria not only producing glycoproteins and lipids and even small molecules like ADP, ATP, and secreted, uh, which involve then the whole pathogenesis response, they also generate an abundant number of regulatory RNAs. 
Amongst those are small regulatory RNAs. And this is a class of regulators involved in, yeah, the regulation of gene expression. And they've been identified in prokaryotes. So you have bacterial sRNAs. And these are S's for small. And these are molecules, RNA molecules, single-stranded, which range in length from about 50 to 500 nucleotide. Most of those sRNAs are never translated, so you don't make polypeptide from them. And the majority of them function at that level of post-transcriptional regulation, modification of biological processes. What kind? Those that involve environmental stress responses, quorum sensing for the bacterium, and also nutritional transitional adaptation, ultimately leading to a reorganization of the biofilm. And if they are pathogenic in, in um, function, that means they're going to alter the infection court. These RNAs, right? So the oral cavity, again, can have several hundred species of bacterial flora. And there's a large group of commensals and there's a large group of potentially pathogenic gram-positive, which we've been talking about for now several lectures, streptococci. And they are going to express, as has been discovered in the last five, 10 years now, mostly in the last five years, most of the literature has come out, they express these regulatory RNAs, these RNAs, which are also sRNAs because they're small. And again, what they control is lots of oral commensal and opportunistic pathogen invasion. This includes Streptococcus mutans, but also Enterococcus faecalis, 